Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to the show. I told you these interview podcasts will be back. And I'm so excited today because I decided to start it off again with my good friend, Milena Martini, who is a brilliant person to speak to. And of course, she has her new book out, Separation Anxiety in Dogs, Next Generation Treatment, Protocols and Practices. So if you're a dog trainer or if you're a dog owner that's struggling with the dog separation anxiety, this is the perfect book to pick up in time for Christmas. But yeah, let's get into this podcast. Well, hey, Milena, welcome to the podcast. It's been a long, it's been a little while since we did a did a podcast. Obviously, you've been on before, but I mean, you are someone that I've spoken to a lot, even when we're not doing podcasts. You know, there are some people obviously I've had on the show, and that's the only interaction I've really had with them. But obviously, we've we've spoken a fair amount in between time and kind of got to know each other a little bit. So I think it's really natural that I kind of start these interviews again with. You know, someone like you that, first of all, has been doing some really exciting stuff, you know, so there's plenty of reason to speak to you. Um, but also someone that, you know, like sometimes people say a friend of the podcast, that kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, thank you. It's really good to see you again and to have this chat. And speaking of busy, you're the one that's been crazy busy with all sorts of things, eh? Yeah, our new Amazon series came out, The Pack. Um so yeah, that's been really exciting. And obviously that's kind of why I stopped doing the podcast because trying to do the podcast whilst filming that was just too much. Just impossible. I mean, like, you know, you're working really long days, you're on the road. It's just not possible to run podcasts at the same time. And then I came back and we had all the kind of uh, business struggles that came with COVID, personal issues. Uh, and anyway, I, just, like, I, don't, I don't like making excuses. I just want to kind of get back on it and... You know, I'm just excited to be putting out podcasts again, to be honest. Yeah. And I think, you know, realistically, life happens. And then, you know, and everybody else has had their own issues between the pandemic and their own personal issues and business issues and everything else. And so I think it'll be a refreshing and exciting uh, release of a new podcast and, you know, start getting people back into thinking about whether it's separation anxiety or any other related topic, right? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, so we've got the new TV show coming out, but I mean, you've got a, you've got a new book, you know, and I remember we had a conversation before you put it out, so I kind of feel like I've got insider knowledge, which is really cool. <laughs> you are so on the inside of things, Nick, I'm telling you. So, uh, you know, why a new book, right? Because it's st still a book on separation anxiety, you know, uh, you know, why write a why why write another book on separation anxiety if you've already kind of done that? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, I struggled quite a bit with not writing this book, but with the opening like page or two explaining why I'm writing a new book, right? Because, hey, did that, been there, done it, you know. Um, but it's been six years since we. Uh, published the original book, Treating Separation, Anxiety, and Dogs. And I'm going to tell you, and now obviously your audience, the little inside scoop. You know, when I wrote that book, 
I I was the only, I mean, like right now we have a over 110 certified separation anxiety trainers. So I have a, you know, a nice little network of people that are doing separation anxiety and, and training the same way that I have been for a long time. But when I wrote the first book, um, I was kind of a, a lone, lone sailor, right? And I was so scared and intimidated to really be 100% authentic in what I did. I didn't want to buck the system. I didn't want to go against industry norms, right? And so I, I, I really softened it a lot. And when I say softened it, I mean softened the information in the sense of like, well, you know, we don't have to do it this way, but it would be kind of nice if we did it this way, you know? And, uh, and since then, I have gained a tremendous amount of confidence in what I do because of these 110 or so um, CSATs and just industry people in general giving me thumbs up and kudos. And so I, I've, I've really felt a lot more comfortable in my own skin. In addition to that, though, and probably the more prevailing factor is that in six years, there has been so much research. Well, actually, in the last decade, there's been so much research. But in the last six years, there's been a considerable, like, amazing amount of research. It's the number one researched uh, behavior condition in dogs right now, uh, above aggression, above, you know, other other types of behavioral issues. And... Um, not only was there a lot of research in the industry uh, and publications, there we did a lot of research personally as, as a group of, of separation anxiety trainers. And uh, so I just, I was itching to get all of that data out there and like remind people that we're not just doing this because, you know, Milena said so. <laughs> you know, there's some real solid, solid data out there that we can we can lean on. So is this a sequel to the first book? Is this a situation where people should go out and buy book one, read that, then get to the second book? Or should we just jump straight to the latest book? Yeah, jump straight to the latest book. And, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, killing my first child a little bit by saying that. Um, but there are things that I wrote about in that first book that just have become, we've realized that they were unnecessary. Now, they weren't bad practices. There's nothing bad about the first book. It's just that there's a lot of steps in there that actually um, are unnecessary and therefore a training protocol might be less efficient or, or less effective even if we're putting in more you know, difficult um, things than we actually need to do. I mean, simplify training. We all should be in that boat, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I could definitely buy into that. So you know, give us an example, you know, what really sticks to mind? I, I'm sure that, you know, you said you're kind of killing your baby by doing away with the first book. There must be something that really comes to mind that you kind of kick yourself for, you, you know, what you used to do or, or writing that or once thinking about I'd certainly I think anyone that's been dog training for any number of time you know a certain amount of time is going to look back and kind of think oh I wish I didn't do that is, is there something ah. for some, what are the kind of big changes I think the two biggest although there's there's a lot of big ones but I think the two biggest one you and I have talked about 
and I think we agreed to disagree. Um, Oh, I remember this. I'm sure you'll remember when I bring it up now. One is that there was a pretty heavy emphasis on interactive feeding toys in in the first book. And um, I have really, really found that starting now, there's nothing, I'm, you know, I shout from the mountaintops that using food and training is the most efficient and effective means to obtain a behavior. In separation anxiety, it's a little bit different, um, particularly in the very, very beginning stages. Later on in a protocol, when when the dog has achieved, you know, some appreciable duration, uh, uh, incorporating feeding toys is, is actually lovely. Um, we love to give our dogs things to do when they're alone. That's fine. And, and we want it to be a positive association. But in the very beginning of a protocol, I think not only does it complicate matters for some dogs, For some dogs, we know they won't even touch a feeding toy anyway. So it's sort of a moot point. Um, For other dogs, though, it serves as a considerable distraction. And then the moment that the feeding toy is consumed, they ensue with their anxiety. And so it convolutes a training protocol because, you know, the, the dog guardian is like, okay, well, I can leave for five minutes, let's just say. Uh, because that's about how long it takes for the dog to finish the feeding toy. Well, some days it's three minutes, some days it's seven minutes. And regardless of that complication, we have to remember, like, if all the dog is doing is being distracted by a feeding toy, and then within, you know, moments of finishing that, they start to show signs of distress, are we really implementing a constructive, systematic, and incremental systematic you know, process uh, of desensitization. I, and I think not, I think it convolutes things. And so in the very beginning, our job, which I think is a funny one, like no one ever has said in their life, I want to make my dog as bored as possible, except for us in separation anxiety <laughs> training. Right? So like mean, the opposite of every other part of dog training. Every other part of dog <laughs> training is about, you know, excitement and enrichment and all of this, right? But with separation anxiety, what we really want to see is a dog that when you go to walk out the door, even if it's just for, you know, five seconds, that they go, oh, mom and dad are doing that dumb thing again. That's stupid. I'm, I'm not going to bother with this. Um, and that comes through repetition. Repetition is really powerful. And, you know, I always say that desensitization is alone is such a powerful tool. And we sort of forget about that because we're so used to saying, you know, desensitization and counter conditioning that they, they seem to be like peanut butter and jelly, but, but you can, you can make a perfectly fantastic sandwich out of peanut butter alone, right? You can use straight desensitization and, and have it be a very, very powerful training tool. Well, so that is one big difference. Okay, let's talk about that one because I think that's interesting. What I, I find funny is you thought I disagreed with you on that, but, but that's probably because my way of uh, learning is often really questioning something quite intensely, which can come off as an argument. But it's, you know, when I've worked with separation anxiety cases, probably since speaking to you, Milena, maybe I've not like consciously realized that I've learned this from you. Um, no, I agree. I don't use 
the depositories with dogs. But my logic, and you probably taught me this, um, is that when you use positories, oftentimes it becomes the cue for the dog that you're about to leave, which which is when you have a dog that's really you know got quite intense separation anxiety, they can learn that quite quickly, and it and it can bleed backwards very fast. Absolutely, and, you know, as trainers, as skilled professionals, we know what an antecedent arrangement should look like, and giving if we're going to give the positive item, the the feeding toy, and have that predict the negative item, the scary absence, that is order of events backwards, exactly backwards. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, so I actually, I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, and it's kind of a shame because it's nice to give our dog something when we leave. I think we all feel kind of good about that. We feel like we've given our dog something that's going to occupy them for a while. And if we you have- later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you, I suppose if you have a dog that doesn't see you leaving as being a negative event, then I guess it's something you can incorporate. Although I might still be a little bit hesitant to do it every single time. I agree. For fear of, uh, you know, starting to create a problem there. But once in a while, it's certainly not going to be a problem, is it? No, no. And particularly, you know, if if the feeding toy is not predicting something scary, if a dog is not afraid of being alone... There's no backwards or uh, order of events there. It's sort of like feeding toy is exciting. You leaving is sort of neutral or or maybe even you know happy fine. Uh, and so that that doesn't concern me so much. Um, I do, however, even with non-separation anxiety dogs, recommend that people um, incorporate those feeding toys at other times, not just when they're leaving. Uh, of course, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then just to touch on the kind of second point within that, which was, you know, obviously desensitization is enough. You know, you can get results of desensitization. As dog trainers, we have an obsession with counter conditioning, which is like trying to create a positive association with something. Mostly because that is, I think, you know, if you would look to look at the theory in other contexts, using counter conditioning, actively trying to create positive associations gets you from A to B quicker because you can actually, you can you can create a physical uh, positive association. You know, you're you're actively trying to do that. Whereas with desensitization, you're it's slower because you don't have that ability to to you know uh, you know to to form that positive association. It's, it's very much more neutral. Would you agree with that outside of the separation anxiety context? <laughs> I, I absolutely would, and um, but. One of the things that I think, and this is going a little outside of my realm, because I've only been working with separation anxiety now for a very long time, and it's been a long time since I've worked a reactivity case or an aggression case or anything like that. But uh, one of the things that I love about using straight desensitization is that, you know, you you kind of nailed it there. It's it's more neutral, right? And with counter conditioning, yes, our objective there is to change the underlying emotional response. But with desensitization, we're doing that. We're changing it to a neutral response. And with with counterconditioning, we may be changing it to a happier response, right? A more positive association response. Um, But I I don't think that we have to worry that we are, you know, going to slow this down so much because with counter conditioning, one of the, I think, potential errors that happens 
is that we get a whatever, you know, wiggly waggy dog when we give them the treat. But are we seeing all of the appropriate, are we observing, watching, seeing all of the dog's whole body language to know, you know, they may be excited for the treat, but are they still slightly bordering on threshold because we're overshadowing or or distracting with those treats? And that's what makes a really good trainer is someone that knows how to use desensitization desensitization properly with counter conditioning so that you're not just pushing, 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 pushing the dog. And that tends to be a problem with separation anxiety too, right? You give them a Kong and use and you freeze it and, you know, shout out to Kong. I'm not, uh, I love Kong, uh, but uh, um, uh, you give them a frozen feeding toy and uh, let's say it took them 15 or 20 minutes and it took, 10 seconds when the food was done for them to start to be distressed. That doesn't mean you have a 10 or 15 or 20 minute absence. That means you have a 10 or 15 second absence. That's it. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's easy to end up pushing, assuming that the dog is comfortable. And one note on that too, not to go off on a different tangent, um, but I think, and I have some really interesting video that, that I, I feel displays this very well. I think there are a lot of dogs that are eating because it is, you know, intrinsically, it's just built, it's hardwired into them. If there's food, I must eat. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that they're not experiencing distress while eating. They're just too busy to start howling at that given moment, right? Uh, I have a beautiful video of a dog that is really intensely uh, eating her food toy, but she's whining and then every every few moments she'll howl and then she'll go back to her food toy. And I I look at that and I think, wow, what a horribly conflicted motivation that is, right? I must eat and she's eating so fast you can tell it's not, it's, it's it's like it's like a displacement behavior almost right and uh and and i think yeah i mean i hey i i will happily cry through a bowl of mint chip ice cream not a problem with me <laughs> you know what i mean and so i think that we we run into that concern that the, that we could have that conflicting motivation and thereby also muddy the waters well it's, it's like comfort eating right you know okay. it's but you, and you know, I think in this pandemic, everybody is a little familiar with comfort <laughs> No, I do. I, I agree with you. And I think that there's, you know, what you just said reminds me of something Sherak said when he was on the podcast, um, Sherak Patel. He was saying that, um, you know, a lot, when you pit methods against each other, when you say, uh, you know, this method is better, look at me method is better than uh, bat method, right? It's, it doesn't, there's not really a fair comparison because one, like Michael Shikashio is going to be much better at doing the look at me method and Grisha Stewart is going to be much better at doing behavior adjustment training. And it, both of those people are incredible and, and there's nothing to fault with either of those methods. Um, but the reason I was, so, so like the user the input from the from the person matters, right? It's not just the method. So we kind of, we have to kind of, when, whenever you kind of talk about method versus method, you kind of like, kind of have to assume like a neutral 
experience level or, or however you want to put that. Or, but, or even a novice experience level in a lot of cases, right? Yeah, or, that's a great... I don't mean as, not but, a, not even yeah. as the, the, the professionals, but as the clients that we're working with. Many of them are like, I don't even know how to... Uh, pronounce the word desensitization, yeah. let alone how yeah. to execute it, right? Sure. Uh, and so we we work with a lot of novice um, clients. Definitely. And it's one of the beautiful things about simplifying, also, because we can <clears throat> we work with our clients very closely. We work five days a week with our clients uh, in a you know through various uh, means, um, some video conferencing, some. Uh, spreadsheet input, et cetera. But, um, but we can give them such simple instructions. It's just not, it's just, it's like Simon says, it's just almost difficult to mess it up. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I love that we have distilled it down to be able to simplify it that much. Well, the kind of the, what I was getting to was like, you know, if, if at the base, we, we kind of both agree that counter conditioning under most contexts is, is quicker, right? Yeah. Then when you, what does that mean for um, separation anxiety training methodologies that do incorporate counter conditioning? Because there are methods, aren't there? Like people use these treat and trains, you know, these kind of like automated feeders. What's your opinion on that? Do you find that to be effective or, or if not, why not? Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of, of automated feeders for a lot of purposes. Uh, I think the people at Pet Tutor are great. I love the train train as well. I have five of them, believe it or not. Uh, and I have a pet tutor. So I'm a junkie. I'm a total junkie. Um, however, with separation anxiety, we have to think about a couple of things. Um, one, going back to that, is the food simply acting as a distraction? So are you getting a dog that runs to the, the feeding dispenser, eats the couple of treats, and then is hypervigilant and whining and pacing in between dispensing? And we have to remember, like, if our goal is to leave a dog alone for, say, four hours, uh, and then the dog walker comes or something, um, can we feasibly feed even a large dog consecutively for four hours? Like at some point in time, we have to desensitize the dog to feel safe about alone time, as opposed to just distract them surrounding alone time. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have seen people use food dispensers like that automated food dispensers that, and have been effective. Um, I do think, however, that we can make just as quick a uh, progress with straight desensitization. And maybe it's a little different. So like with an automated feeding uh, device, we might make quick progress out the gate, right? We might get up to five or 10 or 15 minutes pretty quickly. And with straight desensitization, we're inching along but once we get to that five or 10 or 15 minutes, then we speed off and we're off to the races because the dog is like, oh, mom's doing that thing again where she comes and she goes and this is so boring and I'm just going to nap now. And therefore, the difference between 15 minutes and 30 or 40 minutes is, is pretty minimal and we can start increasing quickly. Whereas if we're reliant on that feeding toy, uh, on that automated feeder, 
Um, we might speed up to that 10 or 15 minutes, but the dog's satiation is start, is starts to take a role there, particularly if it's a small dog. Uh, and, uh, and then we might have to basically implement straight desensitization anyway, because that automated feeder is either going to run out of food or we're going to say, well, my dog is now eating four cups of food and that's, you know, three cups more than his daily ration, you know, so we have to be very careful with that. So, I mean, I think those automated feeders are amazing for so many purposes. I don't personally rely on them for separation anxiety. You said something really kind of, uh, I, th I think that really raises a question as well. You said once you kind of get to a certain point, progress really speeds up. What do you find the tipping point is for most dogs? Is it, you know, once you've hit the five minute mark, 10 minute mark, is there, is there one like mark that you almost have as a, as a goal when you're starting out with a new client? I love this question. And I, I have Susan Friedman on my uh, shoulder here. It, it is such a study of one. It is the dog in front of you dictates where his or her personal individualized tipping point or whatever you want to call it is. Um, I have dogs that that speed through, you know, to 10 or 15 minutes <clears throat> and then plateau. And I have dogs who crawl second by second to the 15 minute or 10 minute or 20 minute mark and then start jamming like crazy, right? And so it's 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 similar, similar but different to the question that people ask. This is the most common question I get asked by clients. How long is it going to take for my dog to be able to stay alone successfully? And I don't have an answer that would, and, you know, interestingly enough, clients will often say, well, I, I understand every dog's an individual. Yeah, 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 I get you. Um, but what is the, av you know, they're like, they're, uh, what is the average? What does the bell curve look like? What is the, and the all, if they continue to pressure me, which sometimes people ask that same question three or four times in a row with different verbiage, right? I will finally answer and say, <clears throat> the best that I can give you is to make sure you're thinking in months, not weeks. And that's it. That's yeah. the best I can give you. There are dogs that speed through a separation anxiety protocol in, you know, a month or two. And there are other dogs that I have worked systematically with for over a year. And we're now just at the, you know, two or three hour mark, you know, you, and that's just individual. Do you find uh, that you get a more positive outcome with younger dogs? I mean, people that have just started to, you know, their dogs just started to uh, develop separation anxieties at kind of four or five months, as opposed to, you know, you've see, you're seeing a dog at three or four years old. I love that question. Um, I have to think about that a little bit, but if I, but my, my gut goes right to the fact, I mean, I'm thinking about the many hundreds of dogs that we've worked with in the last, you know, many years. And I think that, when you start a separation anxiety protocol, you're kind of hitting that, you're kind of, you know, the, the uh, proverbial reset button, right? You're saying, okay, I'm not going to leave you alone for longer than you can handle right now and going forward. Uh, and it's sort of like creating a contract with the dog, right? I'm going to 
shake paw with you and 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 sign this contract saying you are now safe and once we create that safe environment for the dog it it it, i don't think it matters from an age standpoint if anything i would say that a lot of our really young puppies are are more challenging than really yeah uh, and I and I and this is my guess, total guess. Nobody quote me on this, please, because I this is a guess. <laughs> oh my gosh! Now everyone's going to be like, yes. Melena said. Um, but my guess is that when we have a pup that you know eight, ten, twelve weeks, whatever, that is experiencing, you know, true separation-related distress, um, I think we have a bigger genetic component that's influencing that, and. So there's, there's a lot more, you know, if you have a dog that's three years old and that has been rehomed two or three times or bounced in and out of the shelter a couple of times because of whatever reason, they might have some separation uh, related problems based on some difficult life situations. But I think when you have a brand new pup that has been weaned properly and everything's, you know, purchased from the best breeder or, or gotten from the, the most lovely uh, uh, litter. Um, I, I think that we're, we're facing a little more on the genetic side. And, and the, the research has been very interesting about the genetics. Um, they have recently, in the last year or two, uh, in several research studies, identified the actual, I'm not a geneticist, by the way, so I'm probably going to say this word wrong, but the actual haplotype, so sort of like the genetic marker that indicates that there may be separation anxiety present. Now, something interesting about that is this is very similar to how in the last uh, decade or less, um, the Alzheimer's gene was discovered. And the Alzheimer's gene, and people go and get tested for this, and then they're all worried because they tested positive for this particular gene. Doesn't mean you're going to get it. It just means that you have the genetic predisposition. And if all things align in a certain way, the likelihood that you will experience that is, is higher. Uh, and this is, this is the same with separation anxiety genetic research just because you have that gene and it and it also plays into epigenetics right because that gene can sort of lay dormant forever until some traumatic event happens and then boom you've got a dog that is experiencing separation anxiety okay so real quick because i do want to jump back uh like sometimes people differentiate between separation anxiety and what other people will call isolation distress which is where your dog freaks out when they're left in another room but maybe you're still home uh, do you differentiate between those two things? And if so, do you deal with it in the same way? So no and yes are the, sh- the short answers. Uh, and that is actually one of the other things um, that even in this book, I I'm, I was had a little trepidation about it. But in the literature, in the research literature, um, there are no, there are, oh my gosh, I, I probably 15 different phrases that describe a dog that is distressed when left alone. Okay. Um, years ago, even before I wrote 
wrote my book, um, there was not in the research, but in some of the more popular literature and some of the more popular vernacular became this distinguish between clinical separation anxiety, if we want to call it that, and isolation distress uh, or, or isolation anxiety, some people call it. And, um, and the isolation distress is really more about a dog that can be left as long as there's another human being present. It doesn't have to be mom or dad, just, you know, I mean, obviously it can't be the ax murderer around the corner. It's gotta be someone friendly, but, um, but, um, you know, can be left with another sort of warm body, a human body. Uh, and then the clinical separation anxiety definition had become, you know, those dogs that were just sort of, it's, it's, it's mom or dad, or nobody, I, like I will freak out regardless, is, even if there are people in the house, if it's not my mom or my dad. And, um, but those definitions, as popular as they have become in the general um, sort of public discussion are really not supported by the research. Um, and we are, from the research perspective, and now I think even the, the popular industry perspective, we're leaning more towards talking about separation-related behaviors, okay? Um, and I tend to call it separation anxiety because that's, you know, it's, to me, it's, uh, oh, well, maybe, well, this makes sense to you. I think of it as, hey, Nick, pass me the Kleenex. Okay. But you know I'm saying past the facial tissue, right? Kleenex sure. is just this ubiquitous term that we're all used to. I think when I was in the UK last time, is it, uh, there's a particular ballpoint pen that everybody. A Bic? No, it's like a Byra? Byra? A Byra? Yeah, yeah Byra, Byra, right? Yeah. Right. And if you say past the Byra, you know you mean past the pen, but it might not be a Byra, right? Sure. Uh, and it, it's the same with separation anxiety. It's become such a familiar term in our general public lexicon that to me, I feel comfortable using that, even, even knowing that, yeah, I'm really talking about past the pen, not past the biro, right? Okay. Um, and so, but insofar as treating them differently, the treatment really isn't all that different, except for the small, uh, and it's maybe not small, but the adjunct of having to get management really incorporated appropriately. Okay. So just to jump back, because at the start of this conversation, you said that there were two big, uh, mm. two big changes between the first book and the second book, two really big things for you. The first one was, uh, not using uh, puzzle toys. So what was the second thing that came to mind? <clears throat> so the second thing, um, I was very concerned because the industry standard was for separation anxiety dogs, you must use some sort of confinement. And so while in the first book, I did go on to explain, by the way, a lot of dogs don't do well in confinement. Please don't use confinement if your dog is not comfortable with it and or make sure, and that's where we do use counter conditioning heavily, right? You want, if you're going to use confinement, you have to get the dog to love the confinement area first. Um, but over the, the years, particularly with all of the experience from these hundred and some odd CSATs, 
we have found that confinement anxiety is, uh, and this is this is also in the research, but confinement anxiety is particularly co comorbid with separation anxiety, right? And the reality is that the majority of your average clients are going to say, well, I have to keep him in a crate because, or in a behind a baby gate or whatever, because he chews on things. He's destructive or because he eliminates in the house when I'm alone. But we have to remember, we're never pushing the dog past that panic point. And the only reason that they are being destructive or eliminating or whatever they're doing is because they are starting to panic. And so it kind of goes back to that contract, right? If I give the dog my end of the contract, my end of the contract is I won't leave you alone for longer than you can handle successfully. And the dog has their end of the contract. I will not destroy, eliminate, vocalize, et cetera, because I'm not experiencing uh, that panic point, that distress. Uh, and so that was a big difference for me where I, uh, I mean, I still, tell people, you know, assess your dog, evaluate your dog. What is the difference when your dog is in confinement versus, you know, in a more open area? But I really stress now that, you know, this is not, we're not going to put a dog in the, the basement or the sterile laundry room or the sterile bathroom and expect them to be thrilled with that. Um, I think that dogs need to be in an area that they're comfortable with. If we spend the majority of our time, let's say, on the couch in the main room, um, can we have a couple of baby gates up that close off the rest of the house and that's the room that the dog can uh, be comfortable in? And we don't have to worry about that destruction because we're keeping them under that panic point. Okay, so when you say confinement, you, you're specifically talking about the crate that is on being confined to one room is is fine. Right. Um, it, and it depends on the dog, obviously. And again, if it's one room, I don't want it to be the, the sterile bathroom. Um, uh, it should be a room that is comfortable for, for the dog. Um, but for most people, we choose the room that is sort of most frequented by the dog and the people uh, and then maybe we baby gate off, you know, the bedrooms and the, the bathrooms and things so that so there's just one main room. Um, I do find, though, uh, and this is anecdotal, but, it, uh, you know, across hundreds of cases, um, closing a dog into a bedroom or a, you know, a, a small room um, with the solid door is sometimes much more difficult than baby getting them off um, and sort of giving them more freedom to see, you know, out and see people in the environment. So that's, so you said that like, don't use the sterile room, right? Like don't move them to the kitchen or the bathroom or something like that. Is that then because you find it to be more challenging to, to work the, to get progress? Yeah, so I have a really great example. And this one was a, a dog that, that the client really wanted the dog to be crated um, because they had, well, they still have this beautiful historic home in San Francisco and the floor moldings 
were hand carved and, you know, from like the early 1850s or something ridiculous. Right. And they're like, if she puts one tooth mark on these floor moldings, we're going to freak out. And I was like, sure. OK, I get you. Uh, and I happened to be living in San Francisco at the time. And I said, would you like me to come and, you know, for, for a week or two, do some day training on on her crate? Or would you like to do it? And they said, well, we'd like you to come and do the training uh, and then just, you know, transfer session and get us on board to do it uh, after you've you've implemented the beginning portions. And uh, not to toot my own horn, but I mean, I crate trained a lot of dogs and I, you know, I mean, this is easy peasy for me. And we got this dog to the point that she was like, oh, my gosh, when my crate isn't available to me, I am totally ticked off at you people because I <laughs> love my crate so much. Right. But the first time that, so that crate training, it took a while. I mean, it, it you know, took a week or two or whatever it was. I don't remember. And, uh, and the first time we left, I won't say we, we didn't leave her alone. We left her alone for five seconds or something like that, but, um, <clears throat> crate training went out the window. I mean, truly it was such a scary association for her to be put in the crate and then be left alone, even if it was just for five seconds. And so I talked to them and I said, okay, we, we can do some remedial, you know, work on this, et cetera. But will you just do me one favor? And this was by the way, scary because this client was an, a, a high powered attorney. And I, here I was asking him to just trust me that we were going to leave the dog uh, outside of the crate and I said, you know, I, I'm liable if she if she does any damage. And I was wow. like, oh, that was that was stupid for me to say. You must have good insurance. Yeah, no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just dumb. I'm just dumb. And, I, and, and no, I, I really believed that this dog would be significantly different outside of the crate. So I said, all right, we're we're just going to assess this. This is not, you know, if you feel that we need to go back working in the crate, uh, we will, but I would like to look at her behavior outside of the crate. And uh, so we we did put up a couple of baby gates, you know, around some of the molding and things like that. But, um, and we left and comparatively to that first sort of five second absence in the crate, she got to about four or five minutes and then wow. started whining and stuff. But, and I know that doesn't sound, you know, like some people might be thinking four or five minutes, what? so what but when you think about that from a distress level like you get distressed at one to five seconds versus four to five minutes uh it was an incredible improvement and when she did start to whine and get distressed she was just lying at the door at the baby gate door um and as opposed to you know jumping and screaming and freaking out in that manner and so I, I see that so often. And I guess my concern is the long way to get to that answer is separation anxiety protocols are already pretty lengthy. And so if we're going to take a month or more to just get a dog used to their confinement area before we ever start to leave them alone for a millisecond, well, we've added on a lot of time to something that's already taxing from an emotional bandwidth standpoint, right? Oh, yeah, I definitely think sometimes there are ways to work, you know, 
speed up things, you know, little tricks like that that can really speed things up for the client are, are really important. So obviously at the moment, you know, with everything that's going on in the world, with the pandemic, people are talking about separation anxiety a lot. It's a really hot topic. I must say, personally, I've had so many phone calls from people that are, uh, you know, worried that their dogs are starting to create separate, uh, starting to get separation anxiety because they've started going back to work or they've started going out more and now they're starting to realize that, oh, no, we haven't got a dog used to this and this is a problem. You know, what are your thoughts on how the pandemic has affected separation anxiety? So I, I think that in a, in a unique way, the pandemic has offered the, the, the you know, universe <laughs> some new and interesting um, information about separation anxiety. I think the awareness level is something that it never has been before. Uh, I think we were talking before we started recording where there's some really mainstream media, at least here in the US, and I think I saw some in the UK too, um, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, those sorts of um, uh, publications that have, you know, had pretty feature articles about separation anxiety. And, and, um, and so I think people are just more aware I don't know. I honestly don't know if the dogs that did not have separation related problems before the pandemic, if they're going to suddenly have some severe issues. I think there'll be a transition period when, when uh, as there is now, when people have started to go back to work or back out to, um, you know, to, to run errands and things. Um, but I think for those dogs, it will truly just be a transition period where they're like, hey, this is kind of not so cool. I, I had 24-7 with my mom and dad, and now I, you know, now I'm being left alone for a few hours a day. I think though that we have seen such an uptick in adoptions and new puppies and so forth. Uh, and those dogs have never been left alone or or very little because of lockdown. And um, I think those dogs are going to need some training. I really do. And if, I, if there's anything, if there's the, like literally one thing that someone takes from, from our discussion here today, it's really easy to sort of sit on your laurels right now and say, well, I don't have to worry about the separation anxiety because I'm working from home. But I yeah. think it's so smart for people to realize there has never been a better time to engage in this kind of training to help your dog learn to be alone. And you can start gradually. There's not this impending like, oh my gosh, but next week I have to go to a meeting at work or whatever. There's not, there's so much more ability to not leave our dogs alone during training for longer than they can handle. And this is, this is the golden time to start to work on it. And and in case those of you that are listening didn't know this, we're talking about maybe 20 to 30 minutes of training time, not alone time, but 20 to 30 minutes of training time coming in and out and in and out, um, maybe five days a week. So we're not, you know, this is not like, oh my gosh, I have to be spending all day working on this training every day for seven days a week. You know, I mean, it, it, it's very doable. You take a little, you know, how many of us take a little coffee break or whatever uh, for, for 20 or so minutes and we can just 
do this coming and going during that time. So that's what you'd recommend for people that are kind of transitioning maybe to starting to get back into the office or whatever it is, you know, that grad, you know, taking the, the small periods of time when they're having their break or whatever and working on leaving and coming back. Yeah. And one of the great things that we have now and oh, Nick, you're so young, you're going to laugh at this. But uh, <laughs> well, I said, we have this great thing now called technology that you can actually <laughs> wash your dog when left alone. OK, back in my day, yeah. when I started dog training, we had no camera, we had no smartphones, we had no cameras, we had none of that, you know. And now it's all I mean, as simple as using something like Zoom or getting a standalone camera for you know, 20 pounds or something like that. Um, and, uh, and it's easy to use. So it's, it's great. If someone is concerned, they can evaluate their dog and say, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to grab my laptop, go sit in the car for 10 minutes and watch my dog, you know, intermittently while I answer some emails. And if the dog is showing signs of distress, they know that there's some work to be done. If the dog seems you know, pretty comfortable, then great. Maybe in the next couple of days, you actually leave for 20 minutes instead of 10, right? So. No, I mean, it's true because, I mean, personally, I can't imagine doing a separation anxiety session without a camera at this point. Have, have you, you did... I did it for about <laughs> 10 years, 10 years. How did you do that? Like, just a curiosity, like, how, what did you, were you waiting at the door with your ear, <laughs> your ear pressed to the door? No, there was I mean, there were so many farces that you can't even imagine. I mean, it was like, I, I wish I had a lot of that video because it was a comedy of errors for sure. Uh, and so many dogs, we were like, oh, we're making all this progress. And we're like peeking through the window and listening through the door and all this. <laughs> we thought we were making so much progress. And then the moment that we actually walked off the property the dog was like oh yeah now I can smell that you're gone and I can't hear you anymore so now I'm gonna freak out oh there were so many mistakes that were made back then and and quite frankly I used to take my big huge eight millimeter videotape cameras I had like four or five of them drop them off at my clients houses and say record all you know these absences that I'm that I'm having you do and then I would collect the tapes at the end of the week and talk about reactive versus proactive, right? I mean, you just are seeing it all a week later and we're like, oops, we messed that up. Let's start over again. You know, I mean, it was just, it was, I, I can't believe that there was any success back then, but there was. Yeah, that's got to be pretty hard fought. So in terms of, you know, what people that are listening to this that want to find out more, I've well, let's this, this kind of go through it. So dog trainers that, uh, you know, want to learn more and potentially take on separation anxiety cases or just, you know, find out more about separation anxiety. You have, because I know you kind of, your audience is split right between those people and people that are dog owners that are maybe, they're worried about going back to work or they, they've seeing signs of separation anxiety in their dogs. You know, how can they find out more? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my audience is very split. Um, and so for for those dog owners and guardians that um, are concerned about their dog or just want to maybe start doing a little bit of work to make sure that they're safeguarding against having a problem when they do go back to work, um, you can absolutely go to my website, which is Um with 
M-A-L-E-N-A. It's not Marlena, it's Malena. Uh, <laughs> I know people can never find me because they always type in Marlena. Um, but, uh, and on my site, you, uh, you can do a couple of different things. One is just reach, just reach out to us and say, I, you know, I want to kind of talk some stuff through and we happily will do that. Um, uh, and, but the other is there is a 99 us dollar online, uh, course. It's a, it's a do it yourself course. And I really think it's a good place for people to start and to be able to learn about what they all need to do, what they are going to do, what they will do, start to put together their own protocol. And some people, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful that, I, I mean, I've had quite a few, you know, we have, we have almost a thousand students in, in the course right now. And, um, we've seen so much success from people that just go through that $99 course. Although there are people that, you know, two, three weeks or one, two months into it, they say, Oh my gosh, you know what? I just, I need help. I, I don't want to do this by myself. And that's sure. fine too. Cause we're here for that. Uh, on the trainer side of things, you can also go to my website. Um, there's information about, the certification course that I offer for dog professionals that are interested in working uh, more closely with separation anxiety and, and really interested in honing their skills as to how this can be done the most efficiently and effectively. Uh, and I feel very, very grateful that, you know, the, the graduates of my program have become like family to me. And we have a pretty tight knit group and we all help each other around the world because this work is all done remotely. So well, this is, so. this is actually a key point. Like I wanted to kind of talk about this because there are a lot of dog trainers that maybe are vulnerable themselves. They can be going to clients' houses. Maybe they just don't feel comfortable doing that. Maybe they live with people that are vulnerable. That's right. This is actually like perfect. You know, this is the perfect way of being a dog trainer, but also, you know, having that ability to do your sessions online a lot more. Also, people that just want to live on some desert island, you know, and... <laughs> just... That's my goal! That's my goal! <laughs> but you, you know what I mean, like, you, can, you you as much, especially in this climate, you can kind of work from home a lot more, which is important. I mean, I know for us, there have been times in the lockdown where we weren't allowed to run classes, we weren't allowed to visit people's houses. So doing stuff online is the only option left. Yeah, I, I did not expect this. I mean, kind of a funny story. When I started the, the certification program, um, you know, Veronica Bautel, right? I, I don't know her personally, but I know who she is. Okay. Okay. Well, I was speaking with her. She's a, she's a, you know, consult, a business consultant in, in our dog industry. You should talk to her. You'll enjoy talking to her. Um, but, uh, and she said, because I was running into this problem where I was carrying such a huge caseload of separation anxiety clients that I, I just didn't, I, I just could not physically or feasibly add any more clients, but I was getting inquiries like all the time. So I was talking to Veronica and I said, um, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And she said, well, maybe hire, you know, an apprentice. And I was like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to find time to train that person, but okay. 
And so then a few days later, I, I, we talked again and I said, so thanks for the offer or the suggestion about hiring an apprentice. But I think that apprentice will have their, you know, dance card filled in like a week. What, you know, then what? And she's like, well, hire two apprentices. And both of us had this like, you know, light bulb moment where we said, wait a second, maybe I should just teach a class, right? Uh, and I truly believed at that time that no one would be interested and nor would they really take much away from the course. Um, but in the end, people really are interested. And what makes, what I did not expect is that there is a large subset of our, of our trainers that have graduated from the certification program that exclusively do separation anxiety now. And they used to, you know, run classes and do other behaviors. And they love this so much that they work entirely remotely just on separation anxiety now and are, you know, making a, a, a nice living from that. All right. Well, that's great. And what was the title of the, the book again? Um, the book. <laughs> you don't remember the title of your own book? Separation Anxiety and Dogs, Next Generation Practices and Protocols. <laughs> and, and your website is melanadimartini.com, right? That's right. All right. Super. Well, it's been great talking to you. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thanks so much for having me on today. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast. It's always a great time talking to Milena Martini. Don't forget to pick up her new book, Separation Anxiety in Dogs, Next Generation Treatment Protocols and Practices. And uh, my personal request, I suppose, would be to follow me on Instagram, Nick Benger Dog Trainer, or YouTube, uh, which is just Nick Benger. I'm starting to put a lot more content, especially on Instagram, and I'm starting to put a lot of the videos and kind of little snippets and stuff we do from the podcast onto there. So it's, it's good to follow me across these platforms because I try to put some different new content on there as well. So yeah, have a great day.